Hello everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for joining me this week and for this episode. Now, if you're new here, welcome. This is our Monday episode, which means it's like any podcast topic that I want to learn about. So it can be faith, politics, history, health, anything like that. But I was watching The Final Table, which is a show on Netflix. And on this Netflix show, there's all these amazing chefs that come together and it's a competition show. And they have to cook these dishes for these like three-star Michelin chefs. So they go around and quote unquote travel to another country. So they have to make that country's cuisine every single week. And then at the end, they get judged by basically the best chef from that country. So, As I was watching the show, absolutely obsessed with it, I realized that I don't really fully understand the Michelin star rating system. So if you don't know, the Michelin stars are a way to rank restaurants and fine dining. And so like good restaurants will get one, two or three Michelin stars. Even if you just have one star, it's a huge, huge deal. And so we'll get more into the specifics in this episode, but I wanted to understand what the criteria were for judging a a Michelin star, where it came from, the whole history of it, and kind of how this whole system works today. Because as we were watching the show, they were talking about how it's such a huge deal for a chef to gain or lose a star. Like the French chef that they chose, she took over her father's three-star Michelin restaurant And a couple years later, they lost a star. So they only had two Michelin stars. And she said it was like her father died all over again, which I shouldn't chuckle. It is sad. But it's also like I didn't realize how big of a deal it was. So that's when I really, really wanted to research this and see what all the hype was about. By the way, that chef did get her third star back. So I felt good about that. Um, But let's get into the history and the whole system of Michelin star ratings. Okay, so let's talk about what the Michelin stars actually are, what this whole rating system means, and why it's so prestigious. So when you're talking about the Michelin stars and Michelin star restaurants, you really need to talk too about the Michelin guide, which the Michelin restaurant section is a part of the guide as a whole. So the Michelin guide is kind of an umbrella that reviews restaurants, hotels. They also have a magazine. There's different events that they hold. So there's just like a lot that goes on with this Michelin guide. It encapsulates a lot more than just fine dining, but the most famous part is fine dining and reviewing restaurants. So to get a Michelin star, it is essentially the ultimate honor for any chef or restaurant. Now, technically stars are given by restaurant, so no individual person is given a Michelin star. However, a lot of times you'll hear People say like, oh, Gordon Ramsay has 10 Michelin stars or this guy has 15 Michelin stars. And what that means is they own several different restaurants or manage it or are the head chef in it or in some way have this big influence on that restaurant. And 
the combination of all those restaurants have earned that amount of Michelin stars. So let's say Gordon Ramsay owns three restaurants and they all get two Michelin stars. You could say that Gordon Ramsay has six Michelin stars. However, when you actually go look in the guide, it's only gonna be like divided by restaurant, not by how many Gordon Ramsay has. So there's a little distinction in there where a lot of people talk about the best chefs in the world based on how many Michelin stars they have. And technically that just means they're involved with a lot of restaurants that have those Michelin stars. It's not given to them specifically. So obviously a restaurant can not have any Michelin stars. They can be left off the Michelin guide list completely. And that's, I guess, the lowest part of or the lowest rating on the Michelin scale is just completely being left off the list and having no stars. But if you're in that upper echelon of restaurants, you'll be rated one, two, or three stars. Three is the best, one is the worst. And even for like to get one Michelin star, it is a huge, huge honor. It's so prestigious. Like people's lives have completely changed by getting one Michelin star. And they've also changed in a very negative way from getting a star taken away sometimes. So it is placed, like this whole system is placed at the utmost importance for most chefs, it seems. So there's very, very, very few three-star restaurants in the world. Right, uh, I think right now there's 135 as of 2022. But... And there are obviously more twos and then a few more ones. But still, even if you just get one Michelin star, it's a huge, huge honor. And you're definitely in the top tier of all restaurants in the world. So let's talk about why Michelin is the owner of this food, like this very famous food rating system. Because it seemed very random to me at first, but the history is really interesting about why they decided to develop this guide. So it actually coincides with the invention of the car and the guide was created in 1900 by the founders of the Michelin Tire Company. Their names were Andre Michelin and his brother Edward Michelin. And they were both French, they were living in France and they were making tires, but cars were just becoming kind of available i think to more common people there were not a ton of cars in france at the time but they wanted to encourage the sale of cars because that meant that they would need tires on those cars and they would get more business for their tire company so the idea that they concocted was to release this guide that highlighted good restaurants gas stations um, popular routes in france all these helpful things for if you were going to take a road trip, what would you need? So that included instructions on how to repair and change tires. You know, everything that you could need for a road trip was going to be in this guide. And they just highlighted good places to stop. There was no star rating system right as it started. And they published 35,000 copies, um, you know, included all the maps and everything and then released it and gave it out for free. No money was involved at all. They just simply wanted people to say, oh, I really want to go to this place. I really want to go to this place. Oh, I might need a car. 
Um, and again, they were just encouraging the sale of cars. So the guide chugged along being released every year. They would go and, and the next year revamp the guide and find new places to go eat and stuff. Um, so it kept going every year, still for free until World War One. But then, um, so during the war, they paused the publication briefly because it was a world war happening. <laughs> but by 1920, it was back. It was a higher quality. They stopped advertising in it, and now it cost money. So they started charging for this guide because it was becoming such a hit. And this is when, in 1926, the first star ratings were given. So they labeled fine dining establishments and they gave those ones a star. So they highlighted kind of a bunch of restaurants in the guide, but then they gave the best ones a single star. All the restaurants in this first year of the rating system were in France. Again, they their business was located in France, and so they were encouraging the sale of cars in France. And so they didn't really care about too much uh, destinations outside of France. So the three-star system that is in place today was established in 1931. Now, let's go over what each star means. So again, think of this in terms of like a road trip in the 1930s. So a one star meant this was a very good restaurant in its category, and if it's on my route, it's worth a stop. Two stars means excellent cooking, and even if it's not on my route, it's worth a detour to go. A three star means it is exceptional cuisine, and it's worth a special journey just to go directly there like that's your destination you should just go there because it's three stars so that was chugging along it had to take another uh, break for world war ii starting um but that resumed afterwards and uh, it actually didn't wait till the end of the war to uh resume it took a brief brief pause it said but then it was actually back in 1939 um, and 1940 because it had maps that could be useful to the allies again this was more of like a map sort of it had a lot of maps in there and it also had a lot of just practical stuff that could be useful so it wasn't all just restaurant reviews um Let's see. So at this time, because of like war rations and just the effects of World War II, the star system actually um, went down to a two-star system because of food shortages and restaurant quality uh, suffering. And so they had to reflect that there were not going to be a lot of three-star restaurants during the Second World War. And so they reflected the star system based on the fact that people were struggling during the war. So after the war ended and everything kind of got back to normal, they re they reinstated that third star once things settled down. Okay, so in 1955, there was a new rating system. Um, it's kind of separate from, from the just the regular one, two, three star system. It's called the Bib Gourmand. 
And what that meant is that it highlighted very high quality food at moderate prices. So we'll go through a menu of one of the Michelin three-star restaurants, but a thing you'll notice is it is very, 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 very expensive. And so they were highlighting this, these three-star, two-star, even one-star restaurants that were amazing, but not really that accessible for the average person. So that's why in 55, they introduced the Bit Gourmand and thought like, okay, for this price point, for this moderate price point, what is the best food we can get? And that is something they started doing then. Um, so then this is also when it started being customized by region and country based off of the cost of living there. So not everything was so France focused at that time. It started really to expand. Um, the website that I found said that it didn't really become popular in America until 2005, which seems very, very late to me. Like, I would think if it's been around since 1900, the Michelin star rating system would have been popular way before 2005, but it still only operates really in a few cities in America, which is New York, Chicago, New York, well, I said New York twice, Chicago, New York, LA, Vegas, San Francisco. So there's a few different cities, um, you know, in there like, uh, well, yeah, I think it's just those five cities. So it's not everywhere in America. Like I was wondering if there was going to be a Michelin three-star restaurant next to me in Colorado or something that I had just missed. And no, you have to go to one of these major cities. So I don't know why it took so long for it to catch fire here, but now it seems like it's definitely gaining popularity and there's definitely more restaurants being added in the United States. The guide now includes 23 countries and has 14 editions sold in 90 countries. So it has expanded considerably since 1900 when it was created but France still has the most Michelin stars. So France, I think this was in 2020 that I pulled these stats from, but in France in 2020, they had 628 Michelin stars total, or uh, 628 Michelin star restaurants. Japan had 577, Italy had 374, Germany had 307, and the United States had 169. Those were the top five for number of Michelin star restaurants. So let's talk about actually getting a star. Who gets them? How does How is this decided? If it's so prestigious, there must be like a very strict criteria for how to be awarded a star. And it is, it's very secretive, but the criteria that is published or that it goes off of is very strict. So what happens when a, a restaurant is about to get put up for a star is it says the guide team will select a number of restaurants that are inspected by anonymous reviewers. So, you know, they're very in touch with the food community and so if there's reports of this one restaurant being very very good you know they'll hear about restaurants and they'll put it on kind of a list of a candidate for maybe getting a star 
So the guide team is doing that, they're doing their research. They come back with a number of restaurants that, hey, these might get a star. Then they will go and visit that restaurant and write a full report about the entire culinary experience. Now it's said that the ambiance is not counted in to any of the grading, but some people are a bit skeptical about that. Like if the decor is not nice, it could knock you. And I feel like it, while it's not an official criteria, it probably has some sort of impact on the reviewers. Like naturally, if you're sitting at this very nice table with a great waiter and all of these things, your experience is going to be better. And so I feel like that kind of subconsciously makes the food taste better, but maybe they're so skilled they can just see right through that. But decor is not supposed to matter. So it's not just one reviewer that goes, it's many and they get reviewed over the course of many months. And at some point, all these Michelin inspectors then meet with the reviewers, they analyze the reports, and then they all discuss this whole judging team discuss if they're worthy of stars and if so, how many. So this made me curious about who's actually doing the inspections and this is where it gets very secretive. So Michelin inspectors have to follow these core values and anonymity, I could not pronounce that for a second, anonymity. So they're not allowed to say that they are Michelin star reviewers. They can't even say that they're a food critic they can't be given any special treatment when eating or else it's a biased report and really invalid. So they go kind of undercover multiple times to this restaurant to make sure that the food is the same quality. They taste pretty much everything on the menu. It has to span the full menu and over the course of different visits so that they know the quality has not dropped and they just had a fluke good visit or a fluke bad visit. Uh, they have to be independent, so they can't be linked to any other organization. They can only be employees of the Michelin group. Inspectors also have to always pay for their meals to ensure independence. They can't have it be paid for by the restaurant. They can't have it comped, nothing like that. Every inspector is an expert in food, dining, and hotels, so they don't specify the actual experience here or the credentials but they're highly vetted because there's only a select few of the Michelin inspectors. And so they're considered the ultimate experts in food. This is a big one. They have to be reliable. So it's not just based on one inspector. Multiple inspectors go and visit the establishment multiple times, and it all has to be consistent between multiple inspectors. And, you know, they have to show up multiple times to inspect a certain restaurant which makes me think that some chefs and I've heard some chefs can kind of start catching on if inspectors are an actual inspector because obviously they can't ask they're not supposed to know they're kind of undercover but if the same guy is showing up alone three times and eating your food you know then you might and you're kind of on the list for maybe getting a star you're probably like oh we should treat him well because he might be an inspector you know so they can probably catch up on uh pick up on some clues of who's an inspector and who's not 
Um, the website says they have to be passionate about food, which I wrote, duh, haha, because I feel like if you're at that level of a food critic, you are definitely passionate about food. And then, um, they have to give like high quality reviews and have a consistent set. Like basically they have to be a skilled food critic. Their reviews can't be all over the place. They have to have a, a set standard for their food and just be a trusted critic. So that's who judges the actual restaurants. It's kind of like when we talked about in the Farmer's Almanac, where the people who predict the weather patterns are top secret. They go by a nickname, like a moniker, and they're not allowed to be known. It's the same thing with this. No one is allowed to know if you are a Michelin inspector. Okay, so the criteria of the restaurant actually getting a star. This is the hard part because this is what the inspectors are actually judging based off, off on their little rubric, I guess. So there's five criteria. Again, decor and environment is not one, but here are the five that are. The first one is quality of products. So if they're fresh, I think like, you know, the locally grown ones and like from these shows that I've seen where they're highlighting Michelin chefs, a lot of them definitely focus on the quality of the products. The second criteria is the mastery of flavor and cooking techniques. The third is the personality of the chef represented in the dining experience. This is why so many of the Michelin star restaurant plates that you see are super unique. Like it barely looks like food. There's like three little pebbles on a plate and I saw one that looks like a forest, like moss floor forest sort of thing. It's all going to be pretty unique because one of the biggest criteria is if the chef's personality shines through. So it has to kind of be unique to do that unless that chef is very boring, which probably wouldn't appeal to the inspectors. Um, number four is the harmony of flavors. And number five is consistency between inspectors' visits. So I read about this incident where a few years ago, actually I think it was like over 10 years ago now, but Gordon Ramsay had this restaurant that I don't even think he was owning it at the time, but it was still using his name um, after he sold it. So I don't exactly understand why they say he lost two stars because it sounded like he didn't actually own the restaurant anymore, it just used his name. Anyway, his restaurant had two Michelin stars. All of a sudden, their head chef left and it took a while for them to replace the head chef. And so there were a lot of inconsistent meals that were being served during that time because there was a lot of turnover and there were just staffing issues that happened in the restaurant. And that was the first time in the history of Michelin star ratings that a restaurant had gone from two Michelin stars to zero in one year. Usually what happens is if a restaurant has two Michelin stars and the quality slipping a little bit, they'll take one away and just give it one. But for the first time in the history of the rating system and the, the Michelin guide, they took away both stars in the same year. And apparently 
uh, Gordon Ramsay cried and compared it to losing a girlfriend. Like he was gutted, he said. So that can happen. And they, they attributed that to bad consistency. So even though the other four criteria were filled and they were doing great, sometimes the meal wasn't that good. It could have just been one inspector's visit that wasn't good and it dropped them. So that is definitely tough to stay consistent, but that is what separates these restaurants from just regular non-Michelin star restaurants. So then that brought me to, well, how often are inspections happening? Is it all the time? And how do they know that they've stayed at the same level? So usually there's inspections about every 18 months if there's no real big changes most restaurants will stay at their michelin star rating um so people just kind of check up on it every 12 to 18 months now if a restaurant is flagged for losing or gaining a star so if someone says hey this restaurant is doing really well i want to bring it forward i think we might need to give it another star or the opposite if they say i've had some bad meals here we need to look at removing a star. If it's flagged, then um, it'll be reviewed more often. Now, four separate inspections are required for a one star to gain its second star. Again, from independent reviewers, there has to be multiple that go. So there's a variety of people all agreeing, yes, I think we need to bump this one star up to a two star. If a restaurant is getting its third or possibly getting its third, it will be visited at least 10 times. So a restaurant that's on the slate from two going to three could be visited every month. Actually, they probably will because it'll take that long to do all the reviews, go bring it to the, the um, group of inspectors, have everyone agree, yes, it needs to get its third. That's why it's so hard to get three stars because it takes so many inspections and so much time and so much discussion. And you have to be consistent, consistently at a three star level, which is like the highest on all five of those criteria. You have to consistently be giving the same experience for all 10 of those inspector times and it has to be amazing food. So that's why there's not very many three Michelin star restaurants in the world. So let's talk about how many are in each category. So when I did this breakdown, I went with the numbers as of November, 2020. Like I said, now in 2022, the number of three stars has been bumped up a little. So currently there are 135 three-star restaurants in the world, but in 2020, there were only 106. Um, that probably has a lot to do with the pandemic. So it started in March. This was taken in November. And so I think some kind of dropped stars because of the pandemic in a lot of cases. But as we're recovering from that, more have been added. So we're back up to about 135. Uh, in November of 2020, there were 385 two stars and then there were 2,160 one stars. So that means there are only about 2,600 starred restaurants in the entire world, which if you think of the whole world and all of its restaurants, that is such a tiny number that that's why this is so prestigious. Like it's just 
so hard to get that star or two stars or three stars. So then I wanted to look up how do chefs react when they lose stars? Because we were watching this show, The Final Table, which I mentioned in the intro, and you know, the lady was saying, yes, it was like my dad died all over again when I lost this star. Then, I don't know if this was in the show or if I just heard it after, they had said that some people have killed themselves over losing their stars. So like there was this chef who, I think they were having some trouble in the restaurant or, you know, things weren't as consistent. And so there were rumors that Michelin, the Michelin guide was going to take away one of their stars. And just based off the rumor alone, he shot himself and died. Well, obviously he died, but like that is the level and the amount of prestige and the amount of pressure that some of these chefs feel to not only gain their star, but to keep their star. And I saw this quote from an article that said, the impact of losing a star can indeed be quite damaging for some chefs. It can destroy a lot of young people's lives. Those who make the guide the only purpose of their quest Wait, it can destroy a lot of young people's lives. Those who make the guide the only purpose of their quest for excellence. Um, he said, that is dangerous. To lose a star is as dangerous as it is rewarding to gain a star. So, yeah, again, like Gordon Ramsay cried. He said it was like losing a girlfriend. The other lady said that it was like having her dad die. Another one shot himself. So some chefs are starting to... N- not care about the guide or ask to be left off the guide uh, because they don't want the immense pressure of being on it. They don't want the pressure of holding up that standard. They want to be more creative. But I kind of like Gordon Ramsay's take on it where he's basically saying, if you ask to be left off the guide, you're taking that away from not only you, but also all the wait staff, all of the... Um, sous chefs, all these people that want to be recognized, you're taking that away from them, you know, just because you don't want the pressure. And he kind of came at it as if that was a selfish angle, which I do agree with. Like, I understand that it might be a lot of pressure. I don't understand how much pressure it can be, obviously. But I do like the fact that this system is uh, able to recognize amazing work by a full staff of people. And I think one chef not wanting to be on the guide um, can be a selfish move for all the other people involved. So again, I was looking at if there were any close to me, which I was sad to say see that there are none in Colorado. <laughs> but I did want to just highlight one and go look at one's menu and see what kinds of things uh, we're talking about here because I just can't imagine the level of elegance and amazing food that's involved with some of these three-star restaurants. So I looked at the Inn at Little Washington. Now this was given three stars in 2019. It's in the Washington DC metro area. 
Um, it has a Forbes five star, a AAA five diamond restaurant rating. So it's won like all the awards, but the one that they highlight right on the front website is the Michelin three star review saying that it is worth a journey to come. So if you look at the pictures online, which I highly encourage you to do, it is this very, very fancy dining room, beautiful chandeliers, beautiful like wallpaper, just this cozy home feel with this big fireplace. And it just looks so nice. But let's give a summary of the restaurant. So it says Patrick O'Connell, uh, Patrick O'Connell's inspired American cuisine draws ad admirers from around the world. Dining at the Inn at Little Washington has been likened to performance art with the guests always playing the starring role. The experience evokes a romantic dinner party in a private country house from another era. Whimsical touches such as a rolling cow uh, dis uh, displaying cheeses invite the guests to relax, be themselves, and have fun. Patrick's approach to cooking while paying homage to the lawmakers of classical French cuisine reflects a belief in American cuisine today. Healthy, eclectic, imaginative, unrestricted by ethnic boundaries, and always growing. Much of the produce and herbs used in the restaurant is raised on a small farm on our campus by our farmer-in-residence, Genevieve Murphy. So again, that's where the high-quality uh, produce and ingredients come in with the Michelin criteria. Okay, throughout the last four decades, the Inn has established a network of local farmers and suppliers whose products represent the best in our region. In 2021, Michelin awarded the Inn a green star for sustainability. So, let's take a little gander at this menu. It is, it's pretty fancy. So there's two menus to choose from, the gastronaut menu and the good earth menu. I think the good earth menu is vegetarian. Um, and then the gastronauts is not. So let me give you a couple of these menu items. It's small menu. You get like the choice of just a couple things for each course. So. This first one is chilled pan seared ahi tuna and braised tenderloin of veal with cognac cured foie gras, nissoise, <laughs> olives, and tuna puree. That is paired with a wine. Uh, carpaccio of herb crusted Elysian fields baby lamb loin with Caesar salad ice cream, also paired with wine. A chartreuse of Savoy cabbage and Maine lobster with caviar beurre blanc. So white butter. And then you get either pepper crusted Long Island duck breast with brandy glazed apples, duck sausage, and cornbread, pan perdu, or pan seared tenderloin venison with huckleberries, caramelized endive, and black truffle puree. All these are paired with, paired with wines. And then there is dessert, I think, which is, yeah, chocolate hazelnut, chocolate hazelnut mousse Napoleon, or you can get a cheese selection. Now, so this is more like a tasting menu, I think. So there's multiple courses and you get each one of those in a very small plate other than the ones you just get a choice on. So 
They have wine paired with each one of the courses and except for the cheese selection. So that menu, if you go and have a, a meal there with that specific course menu, it is $288 per person. And if you want to get the paired wines with that, it's $208 per person additionally. That doesn't include um, like taxes and service charges or tips or anything like that. So $288 plus $208 is what? $496 for one person. Okay. Now, they also have something... Well, let me get into the wine because this next thing I want to talk about goes with that. So they have a 14,000 bottle wine cellar that they have on hand. So there are a ton of wines. I looked at the wine menu and some of them are thousands of dollars. I looked at one that was $15,000 for a single bottle of wine, which a bottle of wine is about four glasses, maybe four and a half. It's like $3,000 for a standard glass of wine. Just let that soak in. <laughs> uh, I got like my wedding ring for that <laughs> much. <laughs> but that was just one glass of wine. So you better savor every sip. Now, there's something that they highlight on their website called the corkage policy, which I have never heard of before because I haven't really eaten at that many fancy restaurants. And I definitely haven't drank wine at those fancy restaurants if I've I've been, um, I don't think I, like in the last five years that I've been allowed to drink wine, I don't think I've been somewhere super, super fancy. So they have this policy, which seems, you know, as I researched it, it seems standard in a lot of restaurants. Usually it's like maybe 20 bucks. If you want to bring in your own special wine, let's say you have like a big event and you've been saving this really nice bottle for it, or you have an anniversary or something like that, you can bring in your own wine and suggest that that is served to you for, like with your dinner. Again, usually for like standard restaurants, the average seems to be like 20 to 25 bucks. but. For this restaurant, the corkage fee is $150 per bottle. It says an additional service fee of $150 will be applied for more than three bottles serviced. This fee is for the sommelier butler service that is required. So there is a full-time wine director at this restaurant that coordinates the $14,000 wine bottle seller. And then let's say you have a party of six or something and you want to take like three bottles into the special restaurant that you've been saving. Well, that is going to cost you $150 per bottle. So $450 plus an extra $150 for the, the butler. So if you want to split three bottles between six people, you're looking at an additional $600 on top of your $496 per person for the dinner. So it's it's pretty wild out here in these three stars. At least this one is very, very expensive. And that seems to be fitting for all of these because it's such high quality food, such creative dishes. And many times, like I used to get frustrated a lot because I would see these very, very fine dining restaurants and look at the plate and be like, that is, there's barely any food on there. There's like 
two little dollops of food. How are people eating these? Well, most of these three-star restaurants have tasting menus. So they'll have like a dish with just a couple things on it. You'd say, how is that ever a meal? But they're bringing you like 25 of those plates. And so you do get a full meal, a full tasting menu um, in that dinner and you'll leave full. So that's why it costs so much for what seems like so little food, but it's just this very creative dining experience in this full tasting menu, many, many courses, and they really create an experience. So that's highlighting the Inn at Little Washington. One day I would like to go to a Michelin three star. It looks amazing. Okay, and then I also wanted to just highlight really quick the Michelin star chef who has the most stars. Again, it's given to restaurants, but he owns or manages like many, many restaurants that all have stars. He was actually the first chef that had three Michelin star restaurants. Wait, he had three restaurants in different cities and they simultaneously had three Michelin stars all at the same time. That's not even counting his other restaurants that had multiple Michelin stars, just they had only two or one. So he is amazing because he owned and managed, managed three Michelin star, three star restaurants at once, which is unheard of. So those were in... Um, Monaco, which is called Le Louis the 15th. Um, another one was Elaine Ducasse at the Dorchester and Elaine Ducasse at Morpheus in Macau. Macau? I don't know how to pronounce that. But it's Elaine Ducasse. He has had 20 Michelin stars at a time. Um, and he is just a beast. He has a ton, a ton, a ton of restaurants. And he's just so amazing. He's very creative. Um, and you can find a whole article on him and like a whole highlight of him on finedininglovers.com. He is amazing. He did that three, three-star Michelin restaurant thing twice. So like one was in the early 2000s, one was uh, later. They were multiple year, years apart. But he has had a very, very prolific career um doing this like managing and owning these restaurants so i would highly recommend that you go check him out but again he is just amazing he has restaurants in london tokyo kyoto bangkok paris monaco and he's just pretty universally known as one of the best chefs in the world like his talent is amazing so that is all for my Michelin star podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you learned a lot about the Michelin guide and the Michelin review. So if you have been to a Michelin star restaurant, let me know, DM me on, uh, at Instagram at Abby Rancor. I would love to hear about it. I have been to one, one star restaurant, Peter Luger's in New York is this amazing steakhouse. I love it so much. And I found out after I had gone a couple times that it is actually a one-star Michelin restaurant. So well-deserved. It is amazing food. So that's all for now. I hope you have a great rest of the week. I'll see you on Thursday for our Bible 
study podcast. And then this weekend, we're starting the States. So we're starting with our Delaware podcast this Saturday. Going to be an amazing time. So I'll see you then. Bye, everyone.